I'm Jamie Hampton, and welcome to Panel Dome, uh, the show where six panelists enter, have a conversation, and then hopefully six panelists also leave. So I'd like to introduce Rain Henricks, my fellow panelist. Oh, hi, Jamie. I didn't see you there. <laughs> Actually, I think the title of the show is Greater Than Code, but we'll let that one slide. Oh. And I am happy to introduce Sam Livingston Gray. Thank you, Rain. I am pleased to be here and happy to introduce my friend Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, everybody. Uh, we have two guests on the show today. First up is James Gray. James plays games in hopes that he's going to be allowed on the podcast today. He's been a moderate to heavy role player plus video and board gamer for over 30 years. He plays most everything. He also recently won a game of Western Trail 131 to 84, but he warned us that if we say that on the air, his wife may leave them. Oh, shit. I'm sorry, James. We should have read that in advance. <laughs> no do-overs. Right. Yeah. No problem. I'm sure Mandy loves me enough to fix it in post. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce our other guest, uh, Misha Lewis-Norell. Uh, Misha has the compassionate heart of a Midwesterner, the resilient legs of a Northwesterner, and the parched throats of a Southern Californian. When not hosting board game nights, coding at his job in Santa Barbara, or trying to figure this life stuff out, he is hastily shoving jokes into bios for podcast introductions, much to the chagrin of everyone listening. I am definitely chagrined right now. I could tell. I could see it on your face. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to get to know our panelists before we get into the meat of the discussion. Misha, what's your superpower? That's a really hard question. Uh, I think... Perhaps appropriately for this conversation, my superpower is building community. I really love getting people together around things that they like doing together and then having that continue over time. James was too humble to point this out, but James is a pillar of the development community and one of the kindest people I know. So I don't know if you want to take the easy way out, James, and say your superpower is kindness. <laughs> That's uh, tempting. Uh, actually, I'm... On this episode, because I'm trying to develop a new superpower, I've been working a lot recently on talking about my disability and things like that. So when Sam asked me to be on the show to talk about the accessibility of board games, I thought this was a great opportunity to practice. Awesome. For our listeners who don't know you, what is your disability, James? Uh, it's complicated, Sam. <laughs> I have one of the muscular dystrophies. Uh, it's called Wernig Hoffman's disease or spinal muscular atrophy type 1. But the MDA has changed over time how they refer to diseases. So back when I was diagnosed, it meant something very different than it means today. And uh, so it's, it's complex. But uh, the general description is that uh, confined to an electric wheelchair, I have a protein deficiency basically that makes... Uh, the majority of my muscles weaker over time. And James, you recently built a house that you lovingly refer to as Castle Grayskull? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I did. I made a totally accessible, you know, dream house with huge doors and no stairs anywhere, even like out of the garage or things like that. Uh, so yeah, you can find me roaming around my castle most days. Nice. And Miksha, I'm curious, what is your interest in accessibility of board games? Where does that come from? It was one of those uh, spur-of-the-moment conversations. I was actually talking to Hilary Stos-Kraus, uh, who, after she gave a really excellent talk at RailsConf, 
and we ended up talking about board games, and she mentioned that some of the uh, friends in her group had trouble playing some of the board games because of different accessibility issues with the game design. And that kind of started me down this rabbit hole over the next couple of months. And so I just ended up reading a bunch of different blogs about it and looking for different products that related to it. And sometime soon, I'm hoping to uh, get to be a part of building additions to games to help make them more accessible as well. That's really awesome. How about a super basic example, like a first one that pops in your head of a way that a game might be challenging for someone? One of the perhaps most visible to most people, because a lot of people are um, aware of, of this condition, a lot of a decent percentage of the American population has red-green colorblindness, and yet the basic colors for a lot of pieces are red, green, blue, and yellow, which means that two of the sets of pieces are oftentimes indistinguishable because they'll have the same shape and only differ by that color. That's like a super like basic example. Another example would be uh, a lot of games involve dealing with a lot of small parts and putting them very precisely onto a board. And so if uh, someone has trouble with that kind of muscular precision, as I'm sure you know, then sometimes uh, playing those games becomes a lot more challenging. Things like rolling die and things like that, if the the play space isn't designed properly, can end up not being a, a feasible thing. So the game ends up taking a lot longer and being a lot less fun for people than it might otherwise be. Once upon a time, I didn't have any trouble rolling dice. Now I do, uh, and have pretty much uh, let go of that. But I have a six-year-old, which turns out to be about the best dice rolling mechanism you can come by. (laughs) Yeah, problem solved. Yeah, James, I was actually wondering, do you use like a laser pointer to uh, designate where you want stuff to go, or...? I'm embarrassed to admit that that's a genius idea that I just had, Sam, and uh, (laughs) maybe using that in the future, but uh, I have not done that in the past. It's a great idea. Normally, your laser pointer activities involve contacting alien civilizations, but also has more practical use, as we just heard. And playing with cats. Playing with my cats was what I was going to add, yeah, but uh, yeah, super good idea, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I'm worried that the cats would then want to play the game, which sounds dangerous. Yeah, that would be awful, right? If you're pointing to somebody's Hanabi tile and you're like, this one is a two, and then the cat flings it across the room. Oh no, what <laughs> happened? What happened to your tile? Right? Chaos Monkey is applied to games. <laughs> so, um, James, I'm curious about what games you play often and some of the challenges that you face with those games. So I think it's funny, I played games for, I don't know, like 25 years without ever realizing that my disability was maybe affecting some of them in certain ways. Because when it's just the way you are, you don't apply a lot of external thought to it or things like that. But then recently, a trend in gaming has been, uh, in my experience, some of the ones I've been playing, has been to include real-time elements Coraline, I think you actually mentioned a game with real-time elements before this show. Yeah, uh, Escape from the Temple, I believe it was. Right. Yeah, can you explain like just the overall flow of the game? Sure. It is a fast and furious dice-rolling game. Um, there are no turns. Everyone is playing simultaneously. You're rolling as many dice as possible to move from room to room and to collect jewels and eventually to escape the temple. Um, you're laying down tiles as you go, unlocking tiles to expand the maze. 
and the game actually has a 10 minute time limit enforced by a soundtrack that you play at the same time as the game. So not the friendliest game at all for people with motor difficulties. That sounds exhausting, and I could probably keep up with that. <laughs> so everybody's kind of acting on their own there and independently, right? Am I right about that? Yeah. The only time that there's cooperation really is coordinating who's going to what room. And if you get a skull on one of your dice that locks that die, and if you get completely locked out, someone has to come into the same room as you and roll furiously to unlock your dice. Right. So a game like that is pretty much a no-go for me because, as I mentioned earlier, if I need to roll dice or something, my solution would just be to ask my six-year-old to roll for me because she loves it. But then I would be stopping her from rolling her own dice, right, And in a time-critical scenario or something like that. So I, I, this seems to be a trend in games recently, a really popular game, last year, I believe, was called Millennium Blades, and it's an amazing game. It's a card-collecting game about card-collecting games, uh, which is just super... (laughs) uh, It's a blast. If you ever played anything like Magic the Gathering or anything, then there's just... It has so many Easter eggs you you would enjoy. But it has a real-time component to it, and uh, trading off the market and stuff like that. So, like, someone may put a card for sale on the market, and then you can buy that card off the market. So this is a case where me leaning on my fellow players would affect a response to someone else. Like, you know, uh, if we're both trying to get the same card on the market or or something like that. So uh, I think that's really been uh, one of the ones I enjoyed, but where... Thus far, I have not found a good way to adapt to. Uh, It may be possible, you know, by changing the rules or adapting, obviously, but I'm not sure. James, uh, I have a follow-up question. Talking about the game that Coraline mentioned, it sounds like it's a you know fast and furious, really fun game. If I don't know if if any uh, if anyone remembers, but there was a game, one of the like standard board games from the '90s that had this uh, half dome, this half uh, see-through plastic dome. And all the dice were put inside of the dome, and uh, you could press it, and it would roll them for you. Is something like that something that could potentially help make Fast and Furious dice rolling games more feasible? That's a good question. I do remember seeing that mechanism like in commercials. That particular one might not be of much help to me, but surely I could use like a dice rolling program on an iPhone or, or whatever. So there, there would definitely be ways to get around that. But then you, you pop them out of trouble. There you go. There's the name. Good job, Jamie. I could use a dice rolling phone or whatever, but then you have the issue of rolling and also moving your piece in response to that roll and stuff like that. So some games, I think, you know, I basically look at it as, you know, is this game close and I could make a little modification here or there? Or is this game the the central mechanic of it? probably outside of my Venn diagram of capabilities, you know, and then uh, I think that's a a bigger hurdle. So speaking of modifications, James, uh, as we were discussing this uh, over email, you brought up the power of house rules. Uh, What are some of the ones that you've come up with? Yeah, just like, you know, some games are really easy to adapt. And sometimes we do it, I guess, without recognizing we're doing it. One of my longtime games 
since I was in high school, so this is forever ago, dinosaur times, uh, is Robo Rally. Has anyone played Robo Rally? No. I adore Robo Rally. Yes, I love this game. In Robo Rally, your robots moving around a factory floor. You play cards to program your robot's next five moves, and everyone programs first, and then it turns on, and they all happen at once. So pandemonium ensues as robots are pushed around, (laughs) shot with lasers that they never saw coming. I mean, it's crazy great. I love that game. And Roborelli rules indicate that you should start a timer when people are programming their cards. And there's a little timer included in the box, a little hourglass timer. We have never done that, like ever, use the timer. And uh, actually, it would be brutal to new players, in my opinion, because uh, one of the tricky bits of Roborelli is understanding how the conveyor belts on the factory floor affect you as you're moving. And when you're new, you, you go through this adjustment period where you're getting the hang of it. And if you have a timer, that's really going to put a heavy penalty on you. So we've just never played with the timer. And I mean, we'll politely rib each other a little bit when, uh, you know, you've been programming for a long time or something. But uh, but beyond that, we don't uh, use any kind of time pressure. And, you know, that simple house rule has taken that game from something I couldn't do to something I've done for over 20 years. And uh, so, yeah, I would just say that, you know, well, there are games like the one Coraline discussed earlier where I think pretty much the premise of the game is pretty far out of what I'm capable of. Simple rules can make big changes. Just out of curiosity, does that adaptation mean that your six-year-old can play Robo Rally, or is that still uh, in her future? That's a good question. We haven't tried that one specifically yet. I'm not sure she's quite there yet, although I will say just like two weeks ago, I think, She played Small World with us for the first time, and she thought that was a blast and did quite well. She got second place by a couple of points, so she loved Small World, so she's getting to where she plays the bigger games. In addition to house rules to modify games, are there categories of games that are you find generally to be more accessible so one of the big categories of games is german style or euro games versus american games and euro games often have less luck more strategy less conflict more trade negotiation they often involve things like building a tableau or array of components in front of you like cards or tiles or things like that so examples would be ticket to ride puerto rico um, Settlers of Catan is something most people have played. Anyway, is that a style of game that you find generally more accessible, or are there issues with that one as well? Yeah, I, so I love the Euro style games. My wife and I, we will sit down and play one for an afternoon. Uh, we, you mentioned when you introduced me that uh, we played Great Western Trail this last weekend. Uh, which took us three hours just sitting there building things up. And uh, and that is our idea of a great time, way to spend time together. So uh, I play a ton of those. And, and I think you're right that that aspect of everybody working out the ideal strategy for them doesn't bother people uh, if my slowness or something gets in the way a little bit. Uh, just it, it fits better in that model. Whereas if you have a, you know, 
Fast and Furious card game where everybody's throwing a card every few seconds or something, it would be much more distracting to have me tossing cards in that situation. Also, something that has, like, a large hand of cards. I can't really hold a large hand of cards anymore or things like that. So, uh, yeah, for sure, there are definitely games that are uh, better than that. The good news is uh, the strategy games have always been my favorite, far and away. I'm a tournament chess player from way back, so that's my cup of tea, and I've always leaned that way, so it works out that that's the case. On the video game side, it's maybe even more pronounced, where often video games, you know, require pretty quick reactions, you know, for uh, certain things. And you have things like uh, the Civilizations or the Masters of Orion that are much more slower and uh, strategic. And I do love those games, uh, but they can take days to play, like literally uh, a game. And the games, I think the one I play right now that's on the edge of my capabilities is Don't Starve Together, which is a game, a a roguelike game where you're gathering food and trying to keep yourself from getting too cold or hot or uh, all of those things. And um, there are sometimes attacks by uh, big monsters. And I said roguelike. Roguelike means... uh, a very punishing game where you die all the time and that's just expected (laughs) and you learn from those experiences and try it again. Uh, I have learned to beat monsters in that game, but I have like a system to it. So like uh, deer clops is one of the big scary monsters uh, that comes for you in the winter. And I will put him to sleep, drop gunpowder at his feet while he's sleeping, light the gunpowder on fire, back off, you know, kill him that way. So so I have a system for how I kill him, even though my reaction times aren't as good as uh, most people's. I think Rogue, um, the original, and its derivatives, all the other roguelikes, probably represent the kind of video game that people with disabilities can most easily play because... All of the actions and all of the movements are triggered by a keystroke. So if you're able to activate a key by whatever means you normally press keys on your keyboard, you move and then you see more of the dungeon and you might see a monster, but nothing's happening real time. Everything is precipitated on you initiating the next move. And there are cases where you might want to spend minutes considering a single key press. So it can be a very slow game at times. It's interesting to consider how much of that might have been due to technical limitations. I don't know when Rogue came about, yeah. but I can see it being played on a teletype, right? Yeah. Where you've got to wait and print the whole screen and then send your input. Yeah, that category of games we're discussing now is often called turn-based games, where uh, you know, for each action you get, then the monsters or bad guys or whatever get one action as well. And uh, those are the kinds of games where I do very well, right? Because... When it's my turn, I can take as long as I want. So, yeah. To build on this just slightly more, how would you categorize like tabletop role playing games such as like Dungeons and Dragons in this kind of hierarchy of accessibility? Yeah, that's uh, a really interesting one. It probably depends on the role playing game. Uh, it, it's interesting because even a, a tabletop role playing game can span across an entire spectrum. Some involve moving little models across a giant table, uh, which requires being able to, you know, move around the table and things like that. But others are really focused on the storytelling. 
And in that case, it's almost exclusively just what you say that, that drives the narrative forward and drives the game forward. So I would imagine that, that those ones, for people who are able to communicate with everyone else in the group pretty easily, uh, that those would be a lot easier to play. But that's just my, my perception. I ran a D&D game, and I had an interesting situation. I like doing maps in Photoshop, and I will spend literally days um, crafting a map. And what I do is I have a giant monitor that I never put on a stand, and I lay that down flat in the middle of the table, and everyone has their miniatures. We play 4th edition D&D. So there's a grid that I overlay on the map, and then people position themselves because 4th edition and on is very tactical. There's a lot of tactics to combat. And so I had an interesting situation where one of my players moved away about halfway through the campaign, and we actually allow him to play remotely via Skype. So I have a little tripod that I put my iPhone on and that way he can see the board and see the other, he can see the board and then from um, Skype he can see the other participants. But we really had to, had to work to make it such that he could tell us, you know, where he wanted his miniature placed on the board. And, um, it's not certainly the same as a person with disability playing a game. But it was one of those a similar kind of obstacle that we had to overcome. So it's interesting to me to hear Coraline talk about her D and D because it's it's just like Misha was just saying it's very different than my D and D game. Um, we don't normally have like maps and miniatures because like sometimes we'll go half a dozen sessions without having any combat. So like I could do an entire day session without having to roll any dice at all. It's just talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's generally referred to as theater of the mind, which is definitely, well, the origins of Dungeons and Dragons actually was a miniature large scale war game. But, um, the Dungeons and Dragons that many of us grew up with in the eighties and nineties was all theater of the mind. Yeah. I think another thing that, that this conversation kind of highlights is role playing games traditionally have a, a dungeon master and that person is, is essentially helping to build the game. So, uh, with enough planning, I, I think. Uh, role-playing games give, give you a lot of freedom to solve for any potential accessibility issues that, that you're aware your group might have before you even start playing. I think there's a lot of a lot of freedom there that is really cool. So this actually sort of brings up something I wanted to talk about, which is uh, cooperative versus competitive games. Don't Starve Together is a good example of a cooperative game where you're cooperating as a group against essentially the environment. Uh, and people think that Dungeons & Dragons is about a party competing with a dungeon master, but really you're cooperating with them to build a good experience for everyone. So could we maybe talk about uh, how that axis of competitive and cooperative plays into disability and, and other things that we care about? I'm so glad you brought up cooperative games. I want to say that I think being a longtime gamer and uh, living in a place where I do where games are not there are gaming communities, but they're not huge and well-known. And I, I think my number one trick for introducing people to games is to show them a cooperative game. They always come and they say something like, oh, my husband and I play Risk, but, you know, we get really competitive and then we don't enjoy it or whatever. And I'm like, here, let me show you this game. It's you and me together against the board. And uh, it's just a mind-blowing experience. So from a gaming standpoint, let alone uh, accessibility issues, 
If you have not played a cooperative game, you need to do so ASAP. One of the problems with introducing people to competitive games is that new players usually lose, and that's not a fun experience. Right. And one of the great things about cooperative games is the ramp-up is much better because you're all in this together. You're having this experience where... um, you know, uh, you're trying to overcome this puzzle or problem and you're talking it out. So if you're new, you get to see how the more experienced players, you know, are like, well, if we do this, then we could follow up with that and we'll have that under control. And you get exposed to that and you feel like you're a part of this. Uh, or at least I do. I should speak for myself, but uh, I feel like I'm a part of this thing that's going on even when I haven't got the hang of it yet. So, yeah, super great about cooperatives. And then, of course, from an accessibility standpoint, uh, they're quite good. Uh, So I mentioned that I play a ton of Don't Starve Together. I play that with my wife. Uh, She plays the fighter-type character, which she enjoys. So uh, the particular weaknesses that I have, I'm the base builder, and that's like my specialty. So I sit in the base and build the entire base, and she'll ask me, what resources do you need? And I need this and that, and she'll run out into the world and go kill a bunch of things and do uh, challenging stuff and then bring the resources back and I'll build, you know. And uh, Yeah, it's, uh, it works very well for offloading those aspects that are harder for you. I like that she's the provider in this in this situation. Oh yeah, yeah it's kind of romantic in a way. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a slightly different accessibility issue, but for me, like I have anxiety issues, and sometimes competitive games can be very stressful for me um, because I don't like to get very competitive. And I mean, you can play competitive games without getting like intensely competitive in theory, but depending on who you're playing with, sometimes you can't. And uh, that's really hard for me when I don't want to be intensely competitive and people that I'm playing with make it into kind of more of a competition than I'm comfortable with. So cooperative games are also like really good for that kind of stress levels, in my opinion. Yeah, we were talking about turn-based versus real-time earlier, and I don't have uh, an anxiety diagnosis, but I don't like playing the real-time games. I, you know, I don't find them relaxing, and I'm playing a game because I want to have fun. <laughs> so I generally stick to the to the turn-based strategy ones as well for similar reasons. It's interesting because I I noticed something very similar early on when I was buying a lot of board games. They tended to be German style, and then perhaps slightly more competitive, but I started to notice that I was enjoying the competitive ones less because I was also getting very tense for long amounts of time, which wasn't pleasant. And so I've almost exclusively been buying um, cooperative games uh, in the last year or two. And actually, so one of the things that I wanted to mention on the cooperative aspect is there's a really cool game out there. It's called Space Cadets. And it's a cooperative game where everyone is playing different members of the, uh, what do you call the command part of a ship? I should know this term. Uh, the the bridge. bridge. There we go. Yes. <laughs> and so you, you got your weapon. Yeah, you got your weapons officer and you've got your captain and all that. And what's cool about it is each uh, role has a completely different minigame that they are playing, but they all need to coordinate the outcomes of their minigames to like be able to propel the ship forward. Unfortunately, from an accessibility standpoint, that game is in in real time, but I think that would be a really cool thing for game designers to explore is having cooperative games where th- where there's different uh, mechanics for each player and some mechanics that might be more accessible for one group of people and some that are ac- more accessible for another group of people so that everyone, regardless of accessibility and regardless of even of, of you know what they enjoy in a game, 
can find some part of the game that they can play. I love that idea. And just to kind of run with it for a second, there are games that meet that definition today. Just off the top of my head, we were talking earlier about role-playing games and how they often involve a dungeon master. So the dungeon master has a much higher level of requirements of what they have to do and manipulate and control than someone who's just casually playing. Uh, So that kind of meets your uh, definition there. But also uh, to get more into a game, Deception Murder in Hong Kong is a social game where there's different roles involved in the game. So you'd have like a forensic scientist who has to manipulate a lot of tiles and place pieces on them to give clues about what's happened. But the other people in the game do not have to manipulate tiles in that way. So they, uh, their particular role is less physically taxing. But yeah, I love that as an idea. So yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking was uh, that there's a whole genre of games that I don't find particularly comfortable. Uh, they're bluffing games. Like one uh, one example is uh, Masquerade, which is spelled M-A-S-C-A-R-A-D-E, and it's a it's a fun party game because you can get like a dozen people into it, but it involves picking up a card and either claiming that you have a particular identity or claiming an identity that you don't have, and then you can be challenged on it or not. And that one I found like just about at the edge of my comfort zone. And there are whole other games that uh, that I've looked at, and I'm like, this is just I have to lie the whole time, and I'm no good at it. But I find those uncomfortable, and I wonder what those might be like for people on the autism spectrum as well, who might have even more difficulty modeling what states other people are in. I like it as a thought. I I obviously don't know what it would be like from the autism spectrum, but I do have two things I want to say to that. Uh, One, we recently invited uh, someone on the autism spectrum into our D&D group, uh, and that was very fascinating to watch them play uh, the first time. When they came, their hand was shaking visibly, and I could tell that it was difficult for them, like the stimulation was getting to them and stuff. But then as the game got rolling and they found their place and everything was kind of rolling along smoothly, they seemed to get noticeably more comfortable and fit in well. So I I was encouraged by that. So I, I think to some extent what I'm trying to say is maybe some of those difficulties can be overcome. Um, Also, another thing I want to say in regard to bluffing games, I have found the thing to bluffing games is to uh, lie your teeth off about something you could care less about. So, like, I'll use the game Sheriff of Nottingham. You place goods in a bag for inspection, getting into the city, and there's, like, legal goods and illegal goods, and you end up having to tell the sheriff what you put in the bag, and the sheriff has the choice of taking you at your word or challenging you and opening the bag to see what you've actually put in there. So, you know, I like to just spin a good yarn about how these apples are for my sick sister and, you know, just like <laughs> lie completely, but just make it not matter at all, you know. With bluffing games, there's a there's another sort of concept in board games, which is player elimination. And I find that the bluffing games and other board games that I enjoy the most are ones that don't have player elimination because it's never fun to be playing werewolf and to die the first night and be out of the game for the next hour. Yeah, that's really unpleasant. Some of those games have tried to to fix it a little bit. So, for instance, Werewolf now has a version called One Night Werewolf, 
where if you are eliminated, you're only out for maybe a minute rather than an hour. But even there, I find that you're so engaged in the actual game. And then as soon as you get eliminated, it's like, well, I guess I'll sit here until time for the next game. And there are games like Resistance, which is basically Werewolf without player elimination, where they've restructured it so that everyone gets to play for the entire game. And I will say that I've played so much Avalon, which is a, it's a reskin of Resistance, with some of my friends that they bought me a Merlin uh, figurine, which I put on display every time I'm Merlin, <laughs> which is every game we play, <laughs> as far as they know. <laughs> player elimination is a troubling mechanic, I think, through games as a whole. Like, why is it fun to have somebody knocked out and sit there and watch? I have enjoyed watching games uh, try to come to terms with this. In Sentinels of the Multiverse, another good cooperative card game, superhero card game, when you die, you flip your card over and you're this inspiration to the players that are still going on. So on your turn, you can trigger one effect that is basically an inspiring other players. It's a fabulous mechanic and a great way to deal with player elimination. And actually, Euro games generally tend to not feature player elimination. It's true. Yeah, there's the Cthulhu Mythos games that tend to eliminate players, and as long as you're not fighting the big nasty at the end, if your player dies, you basically get a new player, or a new character, rather, and start over, uh, which sometimes can be fun. Sometimes at the end of the game, you're like, I'm totally underpowered because I have no items. <laughs> but it's another another way of addressing that. And actually, cooperative games can be the worst sometimes for player elimination because the game designers still feel like someone needs to lose. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember a cooperative game that had player elimination. We played it a couple of times and then we're like, ah, there's better cooperative games. I'm reminded of Small World. I feel like uh, that's almost the, the ideal situation. Small World does not have player elimination, but it kind of feels like it in that you take a race and ability combo you run them to the point where they're utterly worthless, and then you just throw that race into decline and grab a new one. And so it's just like starting over, and it's great. Like it, it plays so well. Yeah, another uh, on the RPG side, there's a lesser known RPG called Goblin Quest, and it's you know playing a bunch of different goblins, but uh, it's cooperative. So, you know, it's an RPG, and it's it's all just uh, conversation based. But they have a, a great uh, alternate rule set called Sean Bean Quest. Uh, where instead of uh, playing a bunch of goblins, you pay a bunch of Sean Beans. And every time that a Sean Bean dies, one of your Sean Beans dies, that person then inhabits a different Sean Bean from a different movie. So there, there are ways to solve that. This is the most amazing game description I have ever heard. <laughs> I will sorry, I will send you a link to a podcast episode where some of my favorite board game reviewers play Sean Bean Quest. It is choice. I'm in. That sounds amazing. <laughs> So I'm just sitting here listening to you all talk about various games that you've played, and we've probably brought up two dozen already on this show. And I'm thinking, how do you afford all of these games, like both financially and taking the time to play them? That is a really good point. One thing that is, is not talked about when it comes to accessibility is cost. And the fact that you've brought up both time and money is, is also really important. A lot of games that are really, you know, that, that are well-reviewed can cost 80 $100, $150 in some cases. And for a lot of people, that isn't accessible. They don't have that disposable income available. There's a really great piece that just came out by the same people who did the Sean Bean Quest playthrough, actually, uh, about a week ago, where they 
got from their their audience a list of games that were ten dollars or less, and most of them are free. Um, it was a list of I don't know fifteen games or something like that. I think there's a really cool space for for expensive games because the fact of the matter is that building a comprehensive board game collection is really expensive. It requires a certain uh, a certain access to money that a lot of people don't have. And to, space. to like, space, like I've I've seen pictures, James, of your gaming room, and it is impressive. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty bad sign if you have to custom build a gaming room to hold your game collection, right? You say bad sign, I say good sign. <laughs> it's a great point. Uh, there's also games like Pandemic Legacy uh, or Gloomhaven, I believe, is similar, which are like uh, campaigns. So that it's uh, you know kind of like a board game, but more along a role-playing axis where you go through the campaign of, you know, play the game through once, and at that point you've actually got the experience out of the game and probably would not be likely to play it again. Um, so you can pay, you know, drop big dollars for a game that, uh, you know, you're only going to play through uh, one time. And that's definitely unfortunate, yet at the same time, I have to say that, you know, Pandemic Legacy is amazing and has been top on board game geek for a long time. Right. Well, if it takes you a couple of months to play through, maybe that makes it worthwhile. But it's still there's still a financial barrier there. For sure. And you can't share the game with other people once you've finished it. In the case of Pandemic Legacy, if you're playing it correctly, you're actually destroying game materials. Right. Another thing to think about with those type of games is the group of people that you're playing with. This is more of like a time issue. But in games like Pandemic Legacy, you kind of have to uh, decide who's going to play and then they have to play every time, which means that, you know, the same group of people has to always be available, which is kind of the same for like tabletop role playing games uh, like we were talking about earlier. So you get into this thing like we've been talking a little bit about money, but on the time side, like playing Dungeons and Dragons could be very cheap. You can do it cheap or you can do it expensive, depending on like what kind of materials you want to buy. But it takes an incredible amount of time to plan out and to play. Sessions are very long and sometimes campaigns go on for... I've been playing in the same campaign since I was 16. So, you know, you switch out wow, people, but it's kind of a... Uh-huh. <laughs> a whole year. <laughs> it's kind of like a huge commitment to join a group like that um, when, when that's kind of the dynamic. So I do want to say really quick that uh, overall, the game industry, especially the reviewers, have really held the game industry to an extremely high standard on components. And they get dinged heavily if their components are not amazing. And uh, I think that is severely driving the cost of games up as now all games have very elaborate wooden pieces or spinners to keep track of life points and things like that. And that's really driving costs up. But I will say that uh, in my particular group, we've played several games that uh, are what you would call cheap and uh, had a real blast with them. So just off the top of my head, I'm going to fire a couple off. I see Sam and I are on the same page because I was thinking back to a company called Cheap Ass Games, uh, and they have made some really great games like uh, Before I Kill You, Mr. Bond, and uh, uh, it's been many years. I, I don't have a lot of them remembered, but anything There was one about cheap-ass. zombies on a train. Yes, or zombies making uh, fast food. I can't remember what it was called, but it was amazing. <laughs> right. So anything made by Cheap Ass Games, 
uh, role-playing games can be particularly bad with their costs. Like, just buy these three books. They're only $70 each, no problem. But there are really fun role-playing games that are considerably cheaper. Um, There are free role-playing games. I don't have a ton of experience with them, but... Fiasco is a low-cost oh, role-playing game. that's a great game. game. That's very fun, yes. And you can often download modules for it online, so uh, that's great. Also, don't forget the value of a deck of cards. Games like Euchre and Pinochle and things like that, they are timeless and still great. So uh, I do think there are good ways to do gaming on a budget uh, and maybe... You just have to look a little bit, but there are there are uh, resources for that. I feel like there's also a trend recently of card games, some card games that are like open sourcing their cards that you can print out your own. Yes, that's a good point. So I actually wanted to mention that there are open, almost open source gaming licenses. So Pathfinder is a role playing uh, tabletop role playing game that has what it calls the open gaming license, and it makes it possible for you to reproduce parts of their content enough to play your own game without having to buy their materials. Another interesting thing is that game designs are not copyrightable. Now, some games need a bunch of sort of equipment accoutrements to play, but some don't. So there are games like Spyfall, which is a bluffing game, and all Spyfall requires is a list of locations and for each location, a list of occupations. That's it. And then once you know the game mechanic, you can make up your own and play it. Brian, since I know you're a resistance aficionado, didn't that game come out of like an open scenario and was only boxed later, I believe? I I mean, I think the history is that people were like, we're going to steal Werewolf and do our own thing with it. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's it's worth mentioning that Werewolf itself is a branded repackage of Mafia, a popular free-to-play game because you just need friends and a circle to sit in. Now, if you have to buy friends, that gets expensive, though. Or six-year-olds. <laughs> or six-year-olds, yes. I grew up on Mafia when I was a camp counselor. That was, like, the go-to camp game because you didn't need anything. And we would tell these elaborate stories. That was kind of my introduction, in a way, to, like, Dungeons & Dragons and stuff like that because we would come up with these elaborate stories for, like, exactly why you were in this Mafia situation. And it was super fun because you'd have these all these people coming up with this different stuff. It is, yeah, uh, so Resistance was a deliberate attempt to make a ma- to make a mafia without player elimination. Nice. As a public service announcement, I do want to point out that the Greater Than Code podcast does not officially endorse child trafficking. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> How about unofficially? Wait. Buying no. fr- buying friends is perfectly legitimate, though. We're all Americans here, so. Yeah, we're fine. Can I can I can I mention something? Because that's a segue for a topic I've been wanting to bring up but haven't found a way to yet. That's the segue. Oh, I gotta hear oh, that. Yeah. Did you know did you know that Monopoly is a communist game? Yes. Monopoly was originally called Landlord's uh, Game. La- the Landlord game. And it was a game designed to demonstrate how ridiculous capitalism is. I love this. Um and there are also other interesting games uh, from a leftist tradition. In 1909, there was a game released by the women's suffrage movement called Suffrage Something. They made a, a game out of the name Suffrage. And it was a board game where you had two sides with pieces, and one side was the suffragettes, and you were fighting the other side. So there's an entire uh, tradition of leftist board games. There was a game that came out in the late 70s called Class Struggle. That's amazing. Nice. And it was actually popular and it actually achieved some mainstream popularity. 
Yeah, I know that I've always hated Monopoly. It's the classic positive feedback loop where once you win, you continue to win. Monopoly has a completely dominating strategy, and you just play that strategy and you win, and there's nothing anyone else can do unless they play the strategy and get luckier. Right. So it's interesting because – so I I was raised Quaker, and uh, the the one who created the Landlord's game was, was a Quaker, so I was pretty familiar with this early on. But the game actually had two sets of rules, one that was supposed to be a capitalist set of rules and one that was supposed to be a socialist or communist set of rules. And the whole point was to teach people, oh, look at how much the capitalist rules suck and how miserable everyone is. <laughs> and then Parker Brothers was like, this looks great. I guess we'll make one with just the capitalist rules. And- so it kind of works, right? Because <laughs> anybody who's played Monopoly has felt that beat down, you know? like <laughs> It's built into the game, for sure. Definitely. Oh, I, I found some more info on that game. It, it was called Suffragetto, and the suffragettes have a home base of Albert Hall. <laughs> and the the police are the opponents, of course, and they start around the House of Commons. That's awesome. Sonic the Hedgehog was originally supposed to be a game about uh, the environment and environmental sustainability. That's cool. But then capitalism happened to it. <laughs> well, you can see that with the whole killing the animals thing. And there's this whole contingent of sonic deniers. <laughs> Too real. <laughs> Where do you find the, these cool details about games? I, I Google them immediately before the, the, the podcast. That's awesome. <laughs> I actually knew about uh, the history of Monopoly, and I am an excellent Googler because that's mostly my job. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, so you're a software engineer? <laughs> yes. <laughs> was fine. Way to bring it back to tech. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked a lot about kind of metrics of accessibility and some games. We've we've talked specifically about a few games that are accessible, but can we talk about some resources to like find out about other games and about the accessibility of existing games that we know? Sure. Sure. Uh, So when I first got uh, excited about this, I discovered a website called Meeple Like Us. That's M-E-E-P-L-E, like us, dot co dot U-K. They have a bunch of resources. Uh, they, they do standard reviews of board games, but then they do these accessibility teardowns where they look at the game from a bunch of different lenses and, and rate the different accessibilities. Um, they've also created this master list, which is like a, a publicly accessible Google sheet just has every game that they've done a teardown of and then the grade in each uh, area of accessibility. They've touched on all the versions of accessibility that we've talked about, including uh, socioeconomic and space. So uh, I would highly recommend that you check them out. Another really cool resource if uh, for those who are uh, visually impaired is 64-ounce games. They actually make game modifications, so like sleeves and things like that, that you can buy as a set for a, a popular game. And Predominantly, they're targeted towards people who, who are partially or completely blind, but it'll be things like Braille card covers and things like that so that people who can't wow. see can still play the game. It's really, really cool work. And it's just two people out of Texas. And then a third one is Maxi Aids, M-A-X-I-A-I-D-S. Uh, and they've also got some resources for uh, games that are um, designed for people with, with visual impairments. A lot of versions of, of popular games with really large text and things like that. This is more towards partial blindness and nearsightedness. Um, but again, a, a bunch of versions of games that you can that you can buy that are uh, a lot easier to see. 
I want to just throw one other thought out there as far as a resource uh, that's been particularly helpful to me. You know, everyone has their own limitations and you know what they are better than anyone else in the world. Um, so while all the things uh, Misha just recommended are great jumping off points, uh, you should also validate. And to do that, I do the boring thing of watch Dice Tower reviews. Uh, they show the components of the game. They show the mechanics of the game and play and explain them. So I just sit there and watch them explain the game. And I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Or no, I couldn't. Um, and the reason I think that's uh, important is, uh, for example, Meeple's like, uh, Meeple Like Us, uh, I just noticed rated Hanabi as a poor game for colorblind people. But I have actually played that game with a colorblind player uh, and they mentioned it as soon as we started playing. They're like, I'm colorblind. And we said, oh, gosh, we should play something different. And they're like, no, no, the symbols are different. Just tell me what's what. And we did. And the player played flawlessly after that. So I'm not saying that means that Hanabi is a good game for colorblind people. I'm just saying that obviously some people are okay with it and able to function with it. So it pays to watch the reviews and see if meets your needs or not. Yeah. And another thing is like, like you mentioned, you know, your, your experience is best and it board game geek is a great place for starting threads where you can share your experiences with games and help other people who might have similar needs, be able to, to, to get more resources about what games they should be looking at including things like linking to the reviews and such. Warning, though, if you are a tech person listening to this podcast and you're about to go to the website Board Game Geek for the first time, you're going to have an experience where you see a pretty horrible interface. Uh, <laughs> it's actually gotten considerably better in like the last two years, which is shocking uh, because it's still <laughs> atrocious. And it also does bring up the point that BoardGameGeek.com itself might not be super accessible. <laughs> right. So there's that to consider. So I wanted to mention a couple of things. One of them was uh, BoardGameGeek, but I especially want to highlight that each game, and it covers many thousands of games, has a collection of forums, so strategy forums, but also a rules lawyering forum <laughs> where you can go and arbitrate your rules questions. And also people go and there are discussions about house rules uh, in, in various parts of the forums as well, where people have said, here's how we prefer to play the game and list the house rules. Uh, the other one is Will Wheaton does a YouTube series, hosts a YouTube series called uh, Tabletop, where he plays various board games with a group of YouTube celebrities, essentially. And uh, it's interesting because you get to see how the game plays in a group and how, how, what sort of interactions it promotes. And for me, a large part of why I play games is to have fun interactions. And so it's nice to be able to see the games being played and see how they play out. Plus one to tabletop. It's awesome. Definitely. So at the end of every show, we like to uh, close out with reflections. And uh, Jamie had a great suggestion today, which was that in addition to our reflections, uh, we should uh, mention a board game that we particularly like. So um, I'll start that off. I have had uh, the game Repello, that's spelled R-E-P-E-L-L-O, for a couple of years now, and I still really enjoy it. It, uh, it turns out to be a really programmer-friendly game. Uh, it's got a couple of clever mechanics that uh, do really that people who work in tech seem to do really well with. Um, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. It's a fun game. It's fairly quick to play. 
and uh, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, as for reflections, I don't have much other than that perhaps uh, six-year-olds, speaking of which I see a six-year-old on the screen right now, are an incredibly valuable national resource. Um, one of my favorite games is Tales of the Arabian Nights. It's a storytelling game with a really interesting mechanic. At the beginning of the game, you are assigned a quest and you spend the game trying to fulfill your quest and you also set your own conditions for victory in the game and those are held, kept a secret from the other players. What I like about it is the storytelling aspect. So you get to a place, you draw a card, and there's a series of tables you consult, which leads you into the storybook. And in the storybook, it explains the scenario that you find yourself in. And sometimes you have choices to make. Sometimes it's what happens is based on skills that you've acquired. But um, the storybook is really thick. And generally speaking, you don't run across the same scenario twice, at least in the year or two that I've been playing the game. It's very age accessible. Um, there are very few mechanical considerations and there's only one dice roll that you have to do in your turn. So I think from an accessibility standpoint, it's probably a good game and definitely very, very fun. Okay. Did you, did you uh, I'm going to mention two well, games. Or... One for uh, nostalgic reasons, uh, Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, which is a game that I have spent many hundreds if not thousands of hours on and it was weird and the rules were bad and now they're much better but i still have a, a soft place in my heart for those weird rules i uh, like thaco what is that um, <laughs> and one of the games that i'm enjoying playing now i think was mentioned earlier is lords of Waterdeep, which is a euro game based on worker placement and it has a hidden win condition i think you also mentioned that jamie uh, and it's a fun probably top 10 euro game for me I'm sure it's Faco, not Faco, but um, fight me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, roll your d20s now. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, when, since Jamie said, "Well, I'll just list our favorite game of the reflections," I've been sweating bullets over here, thinking that's like picking my favorite kid, which I cheated my way out of, and by only having one kid. So, hint the six year old. Yeah, six year old. Right. I'm sorry to make this such a stressful situation. It is. It is stressful. <laughs> it's tough. So, I'm going to not mention anything I've mentioned uh, before because uh, you've been listening carefully and you know uh, what I like. But I will instead choose a role playing game. I'm going to say Exalted. And if you have not heard of Exalted, everybody in the world plays D&D, which is just a really poor version of Exalted, in my opinion. <laughs> Once uh, again, fight me. Right, right. Ray's going to be after me. But uh, Exalted is like an anime swords and sorcery game. Uh, one of my absolutely favorite elements of it is if you describe what you're doing and add a bunch of flair, then the game gives you extra dice to accomplish what you're trying <laughs> and a get out of jail free card against like the game master unexpectedly killing you. Uh, it used to be a white wolf game. It's white wolf. I think went under and was purchased by some company. I can't remember the name of right now, but I'm sure if you Google exalted role-playing game it's in third edition now it's a great game oh can i just say that a house rule we've had for a long time in most of my D D groups is 
the the dungeon master is allowed to award positives to roles for good role play. Exactly. That, we actually do spiffs in my game. I bought these little glass pebbles, and I will award them for good role playing. And then at the end of the game, all the players vote on who did the best role playing, and that person inherits a spiff for the next game. And a spiff allows you to re-roll a bad roll. All of that is amazing, and that idea, I promise you, initiated and exalted. (laughs) (laughs) Can I? I just want to tell a a, a quick story. I was playing a game uh, that had this rule, and uh, one of the players spent a good two or three minutes uh, describing the way that their rogue vaulted around and did various things and resulted in a completely impossible thing that they were trying to do. And the DM listened to all this and thought about it and then said, You scored a crit. (laughs) 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 absolutely jamie what's one of your favorite games my favorite game is probably betrayal at house on the hill yes which is very similar to the game in many ways that Coraline was describing it's um story based where the ending of the story is different every time it's a lovecraftian horror game um, which is like an appealing genre for me. But it's also very fun for me because it's kind of both a competitive and a cooperative game. Like it starts out cooperative um, for the first half. And then once you enter into this like second half story mode, um, you'll end up competing against each other in various ways. Like you'll it pick someone to be the traitor and that person is doing something different than the rest uh, of the team. So there's kind of like go into that other room where we discuss our playbook and you have your own playbook. Um, which makes it really interesting and fun, but it doesn't get as competitive sometimes as some other games do, in my opinion, because it's so random. Like you don't know who's going to be the traitor until it happens. And it doesn't really allow for that kind of, well, I'm better than you. Um, It's just kind of everybody is at the mercy of this uh, Lovecraftian fate. (laughs) So I really like that about it. That's awesome. I think probably my favorite game that I didn't already mention is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Well, so first of all, it's cooperative, which is fantastic. It's great from um, a bunch of different accessibility perspectives because all you, you need to have one person in your group that can uh, uh, read the booklet. But other than that, it's all just working through a puzzle. So the the premise is that you are members of um, the street gang that Sherlock works with to solve crimes, and there's ten crimes in the base the book, and for each of them, the Baker Street Irregulars. Yes, exactly. Ah, yes, thank nice. you. The Baker Street Irregulars. In this game, uh, you're given a a, a mystery to solve and you're given a map of london and a couple of newspapers uh and after that it's just deciding where you want to go there's no timer or anything like that you can choose to go to the crime scene you'll learn some stuff you can choose to go visit the house of one of the people mentioned in some conversation or another and at the end of it you're all working together trying to solve this as quickly as possible at the end you go and knock on the door um uh, uh, and talk to sherlock holmes and your score is based on how quickly you could solve the mystery, meaning how many, how few places you could go to to solve it, compared to what Sherlock needed to do to solve it. Uh, and so you will always lose, because it's Sherlock Holmes, but it's a really fun evening. It's a good, you know, two to three hour game of trying to solve an interesting puzzle in a cool city that's very thematic and very, very fun. I want to remind people that if you enjoyed this conversation and other conversations that we have on this podcast, you can support us directly uh, through our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash greater than code. 
Um, all patrons get access to outtakes from the show, which tend to be very, very fascinating. We call them truth bombs. Um, you can pledge at any level and get access to our Slack community where you can continue the conversation with other patrons and with the hosts, with our guests as well. If you like us, prove it. Um, go to patreon.com and uh, put your money where your mouth is. Thank you so much to Misha and James. It's been a delight having you both on the show. And um, we will talk to you all in a couple weeks with episode 44. Thank you.